Hello and welcome back to uh, Conversations at Jackrabbit Slims. And this month I am joined by fellow podcaster Petros Patsilovis from the Caged In podcast. Petros, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Oh, we were just talking about off mic about brain farts and I, I nearly opened with one. I nearly said, like, <laughs> how are you? Yeah. Hello. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, it, it's my pleasure. And this is really cool because I, I've said on the show before how much I love talking with podcasters or fellow podcasters that I haven't previously podcasted with. And your podcast is, is, so cool. Uh, if you want to help explain it to people, it's called Caged In, and you, you did um, – the original iteration was uh, a Nicolas Cage podcast, and now you've moved on to all the connections between the Coppola family. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so obviously it started off as this kind of trying to understand Nicolas Cage and like what, what makes him the man he is, and it's got this kind of meta journey for it for me kind of being – not so much a Nicolas Cage fan to almost being a adamant Nicolas Cage like defender where I'm like even the bad movies I'm like no you know what stolen it's not that bad people like give it a give it a tough deal but you really you really need to give it another watch uh and then yeah it was the, the natural progression was to look at his extended family and everything they've been involved in even like down to the the nitty gritties of like Patricia Arquette is covered, but only for like two, like ninety five to two thousand and two. That period, she was married to Nick Cage, and the same applies for David Shire or Spike Jones. And then, yeah, we kind of just like I get to I get to encompass like so much of kind of Hollywood history and find out are they the greatest film family of all time basically that's what i'm trying to trying to figure out by by watching all of their films and kind of understand nick cage a little bit more by understanding this weird and wonderful family that he comes from yeah yeah it's funny um i've always appreciated nick cage i mean it was hard not to uh, appreciate his work, especially in the nineties when, when he, you know, mm-hmm. he sort of really put himself on the map as a, a big marquee star. But, uh, I went to New Orleans a couple years ago and we went on a, uh, like a, like a film tour where the guy drove us around in a van and, you know, would stop at all these locations and tell us about films that had been, you know, that had shot there in New Orleans. And mm-hmm. um, there's a cemetery there that they filmed a scene in um, Easy Rider at. And that same cemetery, and I don't remember the name of it right now, is the cemetery that houses Nicolas Cage's pyramid tomb that I guess he's going to end up in when he uh, <laughs> leaves his mortal coil. So uh, I remember seeing that, and uh, it helped me... Uh, appreciate nick cage a little bit more yeah there's an amazing story on the podcast that the director brian taylor told me that um when him and his like directing partner uh were gearing up to make ghost rider spirit of vengeance they like met nick in new orleans and he kind of said to them like they're they're in they're like eight beignets and had like a, an amazing night and then he just turned around and said hey guys do you want to come see my tomb? <laughs> and then they hopped the fence into the cemetery and like he showed them his tomb. And that for me just sums up who Nick Cage is. He's this kind of like weird and wonderful guy. The fact that he's even got this like pyramid tomb just like kind of tells you so much about him uh, whilst at the same time him being this kind of weird enigma. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I'm I'm not sure if he still does, but he did have a residence here in Las Vegas where I live. And I do know that there were a lot of times where you would see videos of, of people that had sort of encountered him um, out and about. And one thing that always stuck with me about Nicolas Cage is, and I don't remember where I read it, but um, it was a quote that he gave about fan interactions and his, I think it was one of his kids asked him if it bothered him when when people came up to him on the street, and um, and you know, said hi to him or whatever. And Nick Cage said, "No, those those are the people that make our life possible." And uh, I don't know how true that is, but that that also made me appreciate him too, for you know understanding um, you know what public life is. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's like weird stories like that in the UK as well. He used to own a house in Bath, like a, a town in the UK, and there's this like really weird story that he went to like a working men's club, like a kind of private members club on New Year's Eve, and like bought everyone in the the club a drink. And I just mm-hmm. like even that, it's just like really like really heartwarming, and he just kind of. As I said, he's like this enigma, but like seems, seems, yeah, massively approachable. And it's like, you know, so little about him, really. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? He's not TMZ fodder. It's kind of like, you know, he's married, but it's like, you don't know anything else apart from that. Do you know what I mean? He's not, he's not really like front page tabloid fodder. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot here, Petros, but if you had to convince somebody that Nicolas Cage was an actor worth watching. Are there three performances that you could sort of trot out to say, hey, watch these three movies and you'll get it? Yeah, I reckon like there's kind of three different like iterations of Nicolas Cage. So there is that kind of like 90s action star. And I think I would, I would say like Face Off is probably one of the ones to pick from that era just to go like, this is him kind of like, gonzo out there and i would say like uh raising arizona because i think that is like the first film where we kind of get a glimpse of who nicholas cage is going to be Mm -hmm. and it's this kind of thing like that's when he kind of marked his stamp of like i'm here i've i've arrived and i'd say like a latter day performance it's kind of a toss-up uh between either joe or mandy but i'd go with mandy i think those kind of three films kind of really tell you who he is and i i I don't know i would possibly swap out like he i'd even swap out a face-off for for adaptation just because like it kind of shows you like something crazy like he can be like a really serious oscar contender actor and i know that leaving las vegas might be like the kind of go-to one for that but like it's a hard film to recommend (laughs) anyone watch because it's so heavy going yes i was gonna say that's a movie i've watched and i remember i owned it on home video probably vhs it was before the uh i got a dvd player but i remember just getting rid of the vhs because i was like as much as i love this movie i just never want to watch it again because again like you said it's such a powerful film and there's nothing wrong with movies like that i mean movies like that exist for a reason yeah i i file it in the same like category as um the darren aronofsky film uh what is it with jared leto like um yeah like yeah kind of like there's certain films that like you need like uh you need like 10 years between like watching them uh, the the film is on the tip of my tongue it is requiem for a dream uh, that's the one yeah yeah like those kind of films really like you need to you need to watch them maybe like once every 10 years and it's like or, or, or even less you can kind of go i've seen it i appreciate what they're doing Let's move on. Yeah. Getting back to Face Off, though, I think the thing that I really appreciated about Face Off is you had a role within a role where you had, you know, Nicolas Cage starts the movie playing Caster Troy or whatever, you know, the villain. But then, you know, of course, they do the face swap. And then he's playing John Travolta playing Caster Troy. And the the scene that really jumps out at me in that movie as being one that really showcases him as an actor is he's um he's drunk or he's high with with Cassavetes and they're like in a club setting and he just starts um he's really experiencing it and he's having a hard time I think realizing or or coming to terms with who he is and I think there's a lot of layers to that performance and I can't imagine John Woo gave him much input so it almost seems like that whole sequence is just Nick Cage being Nick Cage yeah there's amazing like behind the scenes footage from Face Off of like him and Travolta and it's it kind of feels like a perfect film to talk about especially when talking about pulp fiction is this thing of like him and john travolta just kind of going at it and it's i think for, for both of them it's it's one of their kind of like most standout roles that they've ever done and it is that thing that they got to got to play each other almost and i guess that is what would have excited both of them 
for the parts is like they get that first 15 minutes of playing their character and then it's like the rest of it it's like i've now got to channel this other guy and it's it's amazing like and for travolta it was like possibly what like his third resurrection like uh, in his career yeah. do you know what i mean it's kind of like <laughs> the guy's nearly had as much of a rocky career as nick cage oh yeah yeah so uh, again the podcast is called uh caged in and uh the current iteration is caged in uh coppola connections and um i'll include a link yeah you can find me don't mm-hmm. worry guys yeah 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 yeah. You can, you can find me wherever podcasts are it's, it's a lot of it's a lot of fun and now it's kind of I learned the mistakes from doing everything chronologically last time, and I'm kind of, it's just a kind of more curated look at the Coppola family instead of going chronologically. Because uh, as I figured out with Nick Cage's career, it's like, it's it's quite like front heavy to a degree. Do yeah. you know what I mean? It's like you get to that 2010 stretch, and it's like, hey, listen to a podcast about a film that you have no interest in watching. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I will include a, a link to the show there, and I, I, I got to say, um, on uh, Twitter a couple days ago, you sort of tweeted out that you were watching the movie in preparation for this podcast, and normally I like to get people's first experiences with the film out of the way, but I'm curious, when you were sitting down to watch it for this podcast, were there any moments that jumped out in your mind as like, oh, I can't wait till this sequence comes up in the film? Well, it's kind of weird. So, like, I hadn't watched it in a few, like, a few years, and my memory of it is like scenes happen way before they happen. Mm-hmm. So, like, I was kind of really looking forward to the Bonnie situation moment, like the, like uh, when it's yeah, Jules and Vince in the car, like that, that kind of whole sequence, and like, I, I have this whole thing that like for years i was like i don't know how i feel about the gold watch uh, uh, like storyline and then like watching it this time it was that element of watching it and then when when the the, the next day happens after the fight after you kind of had have all that weird stuff with fabian and like uh the taxi driver and that and then you kind of get like the stuff at butch's apartment and everything going on up until the like gimp sequence i was like oh no that makes all that 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 makes all that kind of like stuff of her going but i want the pot like it's kind of like it's for like a a five-star film that nearly like really drags it down to 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 a four like just in the fact that it's just like she's got to be the worst character in the film right (laughs) yeah i think if you took a poll of everybody who's been a guest on the show so far um she would come up and and it's funny petros that you sort of mentioned how that sequence builds and thinking about it now it almost feels like if you look at the gold watch as sort of an isolated film within a film it almost seems like tarantino approached that like a horror movie in the sense that you know, you spend the first, you know, th- third of the movie learning about the characters before something terrible happens to them. And I, I think if you frame the gold watch in, in that way, it, it, it almost works a little bit better, at least for me. Yeah, and it almost works in the way that, like, it's like, because Tarantino wrote True Romance. It's like he wanted to still use that story a little bit as well, because it's that kind of thing of, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, in True Romance, my memory serves me right. Like, they kind of fuck over a drug dealer and try and run away with the money. And yeah. that's mm-hmm. essentially what Butch is trying to do. Is is trying to do what, what they do in True Romance. He kind of wants to, like, run away. It, it happens not to be LA this time. It's, what is it, like, uh, Tennessee or something like that. So it's like, but it's like, it's almost like you've got that, like, like a first draft of or, or yeah like a short version of true romance really condensed into that section of uh, of the butch story and uh, there's like elements in that though even though like yeah there's some kind of it's a it's a weird sequence within the film like there's bits that really stood out to me and it's just the way that like tarantino frames stuff and shoots scenes there's that phone booth 
moment when like Butch is calling up like his his guy who's like uh, telling him all about the bookies and yeah, stuff like uh-huh. that. And you can you get that amazing like rotating shot and it like what is for all intents and purposes quite a boring scene really. It's just a guy talking on the phone. It makes it really exciting and and like I I just love like small elements of this film whether it's like the a lot of like the fades to black and stuff like that and it's the the whole thing has this feeling of you're just like dipped into people's stories at different points and you kind of like it, it's it's almost like the film is made with ellipses do you know what i mean it's like everything's like those mm-hmm. fade to blacks are all are like dot dot dots all the time and I, I i love that about this film and to like go back to yeah, and, and I know you normally ask like the first experiences film, and I guess I'm I, like from listening to the episodes I've I've listened to, I'm probably like one of the younger people that like so like I like I was free when this movie came out, so okay, like, I d- I didn't see it until I still saw it relatively young in my life. I saw it when I was like twelve years old, and it was like mm-hmm. the the first 18 certificate film I bought on DVD. I remember there was like a, a store in my local town that uh, just, I guess they were just really lax with selling DVDs to underage kids. (laughs) um, That mixed with the fact that like I'm half Greek. So I had a, I had like a mustache at the age of 10 and, um, (laughs) I I vividly remember standing in the store with Pulp Fiction in one hand and Jackie Brown in the other at the age of 12. (laughs) Oh, which one do I want to get? And it's, I think like, this is definitely a film that is, was like, and I guess it was like this for a lot of people. It was like my awakening to like cinema do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? like like all caps cinema it's kind of like a, a real precocious little dickhead I, I i i i would surmise and i recently found that it's amazing that like after kind of like agreeing to like yeah me and you sorting out doing this i found a box of mini discs up in my loft and um i put i, I was like listening to all of them going oh, i wonder what's on them and I found a mini disc that I had just recorded sound bites from Pulp Fiction onto mini disc. Oh, so it awesome. must have been around the around the same time. And I, yeah, I, I noted down like like some of the moments I'd recorded were like the one, two, three. You know when um, uh, Vince has got a like hit her with the adrenaline shot. I'd I'd recorded the Zed dead like line i'd recorded like the i think i recorded that like opening gambit between uh tim roth and yeah the honey bunny like sequence and uh, i was <laughs> like what the what the fuck was i doing with this at 12 like i must have like really loved the movie where i was like i just want to listen to these little moments here and there oh uh, that's great do you and, and you still had a, a mini disc player that you could play him on yeah 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 i found i found a shoebox with uh a shitload of mini discs and my old mini disc player i i'm tempted to record a one-off episode of my podcast on mini disc and just like just get i don't know, I'd sell it or give it away <laughs> that would be that would be awesome now you explained that you were um you know um younger than 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 most of uh, the people that I've had on the show when they saw this now was it your first exposure to Tarantino or uh, so were you going in cold as a Tarantino viewer or had you seen um some of his work prior I'm like I'm a bit hazy as to whether I saw this or Reservoir Dogs first I remember like I remember there would have been a summer that like I would have watched them both. Like I was like very much one of those kids who like stayed inside a lot watching films, and I'm like the youngest of three kids as well. So it's like that classic story of like once my parents like got to the third one, they were like, "Yeah, you do what you want." Like so, I yeah, like I want to say like I I, I want to say yes, it was, and I don't know how. 
I even became aware of Tarantino. The only thing I can think of is like watching these. I just remember those like, amazing like TV shows when I was a kid that were like top ten like great cinematic moments or mm-hmm. something like that. And uh, like and and it must have been like one of the jewels like speeches like either the the one he does in the apartment or the one he does in the coffee shop and i just remember like some something was like i must have seen something like that and kind of put it in my mental rolodex to be like you gotta see that you mm-hmm. gotta see that and like and that that cover like is is so striking as well and it's uh yeah i want i want to say this this was my my first introduction to tarantino and i i think i got it when i saw it i was definitely like taken aback by a lot of the stuff in it but like definitely watching it like as an adult like you appreciate it so much more because the film is put together like an like a like a perfect joke like even down to like the non-linear structure like it is done with this kind of like set up and pay off all the time and i don't think it would work as a linear story in that way like to to get a lot of those like yeah those set off set up and payoffs that that kind that happen in the way that it's told absolutely i also wonder petros if that was maybe around the time that you know tarantino was sort of having a little bit of a resurgence with um you know kill bill sort of got him back on a lot of people's radar that would have been yeah cuz i remember i got the kill bill films like Again, my mum, like, would just, if we said to her, she just had, like, through work, new people who could get bootleg DVDs. And, like, we would kind of go, like, or or, or, or or somebody around school was passing around, like, a, like bootleg copies of Kill Bill 1 and 2. And I just remember there was, like, that, that year, and it was, like, I was kind of like a pig in shit, because it was, like, <laughs> oh, I watched... Pulp Fiction, I watched Reservoir Dogs, and now, like, somebody's given me a copy of Kill Bill. And, like, like as soon as we stop recording, like, I've, uh, yeah, on, like, uh, streaming platform in the UK, both Kill Bills 1 and 2 are on there. And, like, it's been, like, especially after watching Pulp Fiction, I'm kind of, like, now I'm in, like, a, a Tarantino zone. I, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to revisit those two as well. So I see, I, I don't know. Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction is, it's amazing. She's like, she's, she's sexy. And I, I, I had this weird thing watching again, as much as I said, like Fabian, like I don't like the character. I definitely had like some kind of like sexual awakening flashbacks as a kid like yeah being 12 again like there was i definitely remember like there was a thing like i was like oh yeah fabian like there is something like sexy about that as well like that i, I definitely can could, i don't know i yeah i i can remember being in my childhood bedroom like with one of those like tv video dvd combis like on on one of those weird wall brackets watching it so like yeah it's, uh, it's it, it was a weird experience yeah we we've talked about uma thurman a bunch on this podcast and i and i gotta say that that's she's one of the the more special parts of this movie in terms of you know so many different filmmakers would have gone in such a different direction with that casting and she really is perfectly um you know she's she's perfect in the role and she's she's just such a unique beautiful looking individual um her delivery's great and and i really think that that's one of the benefits of tarantino as a filmmaker is understanding who should play a role and committing to it and travolta is an, another example of that as well i mean travolta couldn't really get arrested and uh tarantino went to bat for him yeah i think the whole like travolta and this is got this is definitely one of travolta's like best roles and in the fact that like you watch it and you don't think oh i'm watching john travolta you're like oh i'm watching vincent vega mm-hmm. like he gets he gets he gets lost in the character and it's this it's this weird thing as well so obviously like because the because like the your yeah the 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 way the film works in that it like it shifts between who you're with 
like you're root like you're rooting for him e- even though he's like doing all this dirty shit and like Jimmy you know I mean? he's like he's like g- getting getting strung out on heroin and all this and then and then like you're like I'm still with him like the whole first sequence and then when it flips over to like Butcher's perspective like when he gets blown away you're kind of like yeah he fucking deserves it because like he's coming after butch and then like it kind of yeah it plays this weird like magic trick on you that like when it flips over to the bonnie situation you're like i'm really rooting i'm really rooting for you again and it's like even though (laughs) you know he dies and like yeah Yeah. i I just I, i think it's great and it's it's really trite and kind of outplayed to say but it feels even even in 2021 it feels so fresh and like i uh-huh. would say it could come out today and like would still be fresh and it would but i can't imagine it being 2021 and kind of like the landscape of cinema as a whole without this film it kind of very much feels like a a line in the sand in cinema you kind of have those moments where it's like this is like yeah kind of you kind of see the ripple effects throughout cinema and it's like just tarantino's fingerprints are on a lot of stuff like and, and they're very much like second hand you have so many people like aping his style and stuff like that that's really well put petros and and i think that's one of the things that bugs me the most is a lot of times i'll go on twitter and see a lot of young people talking about pulp fiction um uh, it seems like there's two trains of thoughts on it um there's a lot of people that say if you ever meet a man whose favorite movie is pulp fiction run the other way which is kind of weird to me, but then also people that say the movie's overrated or it's boring. And I think you pointed out something that's really, really, um, under, you know, undervalued with Pulp Fiction is like you said, how it changed the landscape of filmmaking. And for me, on episode zero, I sort of explained what the film meant to me and sort of, um, awakening, uh, a love of film in me and, and making me understand what filmmakers do and, how directors make choices. But I think that's the one thing that's mainly overlooked nowadays is sure. You can look at the film as a film, but then you also have to look at it as how it impacted the industry. And I think, um, uh, I'm glad you, you said that because I think it's, it's really, um, it's not said enough. Yeah. I kind of like that. That's a thing I'm like really fascinated by in general. So like, like looking at like, uh, the seventies, like, the godfather is like one of those other films it's like we wouldn't have and like yeah we wouldn't have kind of modern blockbusters i know people equate it to jaws but it's like Mm -hmm. if you didn't get the success of the godfather and like there's this whole argument that i have and especially looking at the coppola family it's like if you don't have francis ford coppola you don't have like you don't have so much cinema you don't have you you don't have Star Wars because you don't have him taking George Lucas under his wing and like kind of saying, "Hey, make like I'll produce your film, make American Graffiti," and that kind of weird rivalry that was created between that new Hollywood gang that never happens. You you, you probably never get Jaws because you haven't got like Francis Ford Coppola going, "Hey, films used to kind of." be shown like town to town you would like do you know I mean the the real the road show like, yeah yeah they would be it'd be road shows whereas like the godfather was like hey we're opening on like 800 screens opening day and it's like that had never happened before so like that is kind of like a landmark in cinema and like i think like there's a like a lineage and i'm currently like reading peter biskine's uh book uh what is it uh down and dirty like yeah down and dirty hollywood or something like that where it's all about the kind of 90s era of miramax and sundance and kind of like the birth of tarantino and stuff like that and he also did an amazing book called easy riders raging bull which is kind of like the birth of new hollywood i've read that one yeah yeah so like yeah and and I think like there is a def- definite lineage between those guys of the seventies, and that is a thing. Like Tarantino is obviously like in interviews 
says all these like influences and homages he puts in his film but what is fascinating about pulp fiction is the fact that like i don't know maybe i'm ignorant but like none of the like uh influences or like homages are overt as they are in other of his films do you know what i mean like when you get to kill bill it's like right yeah i can see the Shaw Shaw brothers influence yeah. when you get to uh inglorious bastards it's like oh yeah i can kind of see the like spaghetti westerns to it to to a degree i can kind of see that kind of like italian making of cinema like do you know what i mean like the the old or like even like peck and par or something like that influences uh yeah when you get to django it's like spaghetti spaghetti westerns left right and center and like so on and so forth but like pulp fiction is this thing where it's like it's a film that's like of its time but out of time at the same at the same mm-hmm. time and it's like this I, it's, I don't know, it's it's this weird thing that, like, yeah, it's kind of, from, like, a, from, like, a Gen Z perspective, you can kind of go, like, oh, uh, yeah, it's overrated and stuff like that, but, like, these are people who are growing up on the stuff that is, like, built upon what Pulp Fiction did. So, like, of course, like, people in their eyes might have done it better in a way but it's like attention spans have changed do you know what I mean like so many things have changed and it's that same thing like to use like a weird analogy it's like when you hear like all of these uh rappers with Lil in front of their name who say like yeah I'd, I I've never listened to Tupac and Biggie and it's like that thing of like yeah yeah cool like th- this isn't this almost like that stuff isn't for you and it's like I don't I, I don't know. I, I do think though that like pulp fiction is is something special in the in the what yeah, what it did for for filmmakers and for good or bad the influence it had on people, do you know what I mean? Because you did you, you there is a lot of kind of sub Tarantino that is kind of irksome and those like a lot of like broy stuff like that came out of it and it's but at the same time like i th- i think it's 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 just so i don't know, it's really fat it's a really fascinating film like because it is it is just kind of yeah it's it's unto its own it is kind of like because most of it is just like most of it's talking as well and it's like but those conversations are so fascinating like i'd like and I just like I found I found myself this time being like I just want to hear more like when they're having that like Tony Rocker horror like conversation at the beginning like with Jules and Vince like kind of walking down the hallways or like yeah like the the conversations that people are having like I'm like I just I I, I, I want to hear more of this and like I I want to. I want to see what Jules did next. Do you know what I mean? I want to like. I, I I'm gutted that like Tarantino has not ever like even talked about like the idea of kind of like doing this almost like a modern western of just Jules wandering about America, like a kind of a Tarantino version of Nomadland or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so you covered a lot there, and and I want to get to the conversations, um, especially the Tony Rocky Horror one, because you know when you first watch the movie, you might think that's a throwaway conversation, but it informs the entire date, for lack of a better word, that he go that Vincent goes on with Mia. It's the first thing on his mind, and he wants it's bugging him, and he wants to talk to her about it, and that informs the whole Jackrabbit Slim scene. Yes, def- definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is like that thing that really like it gives you a gl- and and the thing is in those conversations it gives you a glimpse into who those people like it tells you so much about those people and the fact that like that thing bugged Vince that he had to say it to Mia at that dinner again tells you like so much about Vince that it's just like wholly fascinating and like yeah that that jackrabbit slims sequence i know you've talked about it before on the podcast but like 
what that's the that's the only set you get in the film right that's like the the only thing they built and it's like it's it's fantastic yeah it's a location that couldn't exist in the real world um i do want to get back uh petros to what you said about the godfather because i think that's really important and i'm glad you said it because uh in a lot of ways francis ford coppola he really paid a, a cost um that it, it cost him professionally, it probably cost him personally, um, but he paid a cost for a lot of filmmakers or a lot of filmmakers that are benefiting from what he did, even if you go back to him creating his own studio. Um, I, I, I hope there's a time where people reevaluate his importance as a filmmaker. I mean, I know film people get it, but I, I think you know people look at Francis Ford Coppola and they don't see the importance of him as uh, as a force. Yeah, well, I think it's, I think the whole like Zoe trope uh, like thing is is fascinating because it's like it's a and and I find it funny as well that it is essentially what George Lucas eventually tried like did and succeeded with lucasfilm mm-hmm. in that like he did create this weird thing outside of the hollywood system where he kind of like owned everything and it's like I, I, and i'm a massive champion not just for like because uh, yeah front in one hand francis ford coppola is seen as like a master of cinema do you know what i mean like a lot of people will say like objectively if you look at the greatest films ever made they will say the godfather or the godfather part two mm-hmm. but i think like as a body of work that he's got and i'm a massive champion for like his 80s output like especially like the outsiders Rumblefish, and like uh one from the heart and i think he's like he's a testament to that thing of just like trying having like this singular vision and and doing what you want to do and i, I, I again it, it ties perfectly back into tarantino because i think like if you didn't have these people who kind of paved the way of going like hey just write what you want to write and i'm like i know that france sword copper has kind of been like an advocate of doing that and that that's kind of like the zoe trope ethos was like let's just make cool shit that we want to make like it yeah unfortunately didn't didn't succeed in the whole like way that he wanted to but i think if it wasn't for those kind of like well like pie yeah like france sword coppola being like the the canary going down the mine shaft like and then, and then come like coming back out that we like yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't have had like those kind of 90s guys whether it's tarantino or like even like steven soderbergh and stuff like that they they kind of like wouldn't have been able to i don't know have the mate yeah the ch- the chances that they got oh yeah yeah totally and you know i definitely think that the that sort of indie explosion in the 90s was sort of a return to, you know, giving directors power again. Yeah, you look at Tarantino, even Kevin Smith or Richard Linkletter, um, Soderbergh's a great example. All of those guys were, they would have fit in in the 70s, you know, filmmaking scene. Yeah, and that, like, a lot of them, like, reference back to them, I guess, like, another one would be, like, like David O. Russell, or even like, even if you go to like the late nineties, like mid to late nineties, like Wes Anderson, kind of like almost falls into like mm-hmm. all of these guys are are borrowing from those guys in the seventies, but doing so like doing something fascinating, and like that's why I think like it's weird that like obviously like Pulp Fiction is Tarantino's biggest film, but it's almost like one of the biggest like outliers in his career because there is that i don't know like very much that and rise of wild dogs feel of a piece to me mm-hmm. these kind of like somewhat small la stories of like crooks and criminals and then like after that i, I guess even jackie brown to an extent they kind of work as this kind of like great little like uh triple bill almost or like a kind of like little thematic trilogy of these low lifes and stuff like that mm-hmm. and then anything past that is kind of like 
It's the way I look at, uh, yeah, like I've been watching a lot of Wes Anderson films for, for my podcast. And it's like, it's that thing like once you get to the life aquatic with Steve Zizou, it's like you're fully in Wes Landerson, as I like to call it. Like you're fully like in this, in this yeah. Disneyland thing. And it's, it's that thing. Tarantino had the same thing. Like once you get to kill Bill, you're very much in like tarantino land do you know what i mean like you're whereas like they, those first three and yeah i think pulp pulp fiction of those i don't know i i i see i i've got a big i've got a big admiration for jackie brown but I, that's what that's one i need to rewatch. ah thank you so much craig i'm, I'm i think i'm gonna <laughs> go, go on a uh go on a tarantino binge after and i remember um jackie brown um it it's it's a really mature film and it, it's it's a really really strong third film from a filmmaker because it's so confident and it's it's again it's so mature it, it it's a filmmaker doing exactly what he wants to do and and I got to say that it, it's funny now I think there was what maybe a three year wait for um for Jackie Brown after Pulp Fiction which in in today's day and age three years doesn't seem like a lot look at how long. Christopher Nolan, for example, goes between films. Mm-hmm. But I remember that weight being unbearable for me. And at the same time, um, I was also, and, and still am, a huge Elmore Leonard fan. So when I knew that he was adapting Rum Punch for the, for the big screen as his next film, I got really excited because Rum Punch is a book I had read. Um, and I remember being underwhelmed at the time because expectations are so, so large. And at the same time, Tarantino made rum punch his own you know of course the title's different the you know there's a lot of differences between that book and that movie so the thing that bothered me about it is ultimately what made me really appreciate it um especially when it hit home video is how confident um tarantino was to sort of capture the essence of the story while still making it his own and i see a lot of people mentioning now how much they appreciate and admire Jackie Brown. So it's kind of cool to see that sort of lost film in his filmography getting getting attention again. Well, I love the origin story of it. I'm not sure if it's been mentioned on the podcast, and this may be apocryphal. Like, I, 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 I might be remembering this wrong, but Tarantino had originally had an idea in Pulp Fiction for, like, a Pam Greer plotline that obviously through, like lengthened like uh yeah just how kind of unwieldy it become as it is kind of didn't get to shoot any of that and had promised pam greer like no no don't worry pam i, I got something for you i like I, I, my next film you're gonna be the star and then like he he fucking like he he, he made true on that promise and made made jackie brown for pam greer and it's it's another example of like well throughout his career just like getting these kind of people who are for want of a better term over the hill and giving them like a second third fourth chance like that film you kind of got pam greer you've also got what robert forrester and it's like who kind of like yeah nominated for an oscar yeah, and now you look at like Robert Forrester, like people will be like, Oh yeah, like Twin Peaks a return, breaking bad, do you know what I mean? And it's like none of that happens without Tarantino doing that, do you know what I mean? And it's like face off is not happening if Tarantino didn't mm-hmm. cast John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. So like it all comes back to that kind of like even if you're a yeah, Gen Z and you're saying like Pulp Fiction's boring. I don't like it. There are ripples to things that you like. Twin Peaks Return might be a bad example because I guess that the 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 inbuilt demographic for that are people who either watched it the first <laughs> yeah. time or uh, are like me who kind of have this uh, desire to. To, yeah, to, to dive back into things of the 90s and then be like, ah, oh, Twin Peaks of Returns coming out. But, like, uh, Breaking Bad, like, I, I, even people, yeah, even, even young kids, I'm sure, appreciate that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's another thing that's, you know, uh, 
really great about Tarantino is he's able to visualize performances from actors that have are no longer being considered for things, and in a way. It's an amazing uh, economical way to manage your budget as well, because I'm sure when he signed Travolta for Pulp Fiction, you know, Travolta's asking price wasn't a lot. And, you know, these are performers that still have great performances to give, but for re- for whatever reason, they're not seemed cool anymore, or, um, you know, they're just not getting that shot. So um, that's another thing that I, I really appreciated him as a filmmaker, is he gives those actors... Uh, another shot at things and every time they knock it out of the park yeah and it's 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 interesting because like was like was bruce willis in the same boat as john travolta at that time or was like was he a big get for for that era no that's the amazing thing about it is he was really like i think he was probably at the top of his earnings potential um you're right around the time die hard 2 came out so, like, Bruce Willis' action star was definitely a thing. So, you know, now it was more like, um, you know, Bruce, you can say what you want about him and the choices he's made, but uh, he was, I think, one of the first actors to say, hey, I'm going to do this movie. I'm not going to get paid as much, but it's an opportunity for me to do something that, I, that I'm not doing. So I, I think he made it acceptable for a lot of actors to sort of, do roles like that without getting the $20 million payday. Yeah, t- two of the choices that Bruce Willis made in 94 were Pulp Fiction and North. Let's just say one of them was a great choice. <laughs> one of them, not so much. Oh, that is, that is too much. Uh, Petros, this has really uh, been a, a, a great conversation. I love when we go down these roads where we're able to talk about things somewhat related to the movie or how the movie came about. Um, so uh, before we wrap things up, is there any sort of final thought you have about Pulp Fiction in 2021? I, I without like kind of reiterating things that I've, I've already said, is it like, it is, it is fresh. It is, it is an important film in the kind of like, if you're anyone who's kind of like, if you're listening to episode like what is it like over 10 of this episode and kind of going like oh i'm like i haven't seen it i don't know why you're listening (laughs) like uh like yeah if like it's definitely something that like it's a film that bears repeat viewing and it's like i think it's great and i'd be remiss not to say that like one of the the funny things about it is in the uk it's kind of had this it's got this weird legacy and it's the fact that like Harvey Keitel uh, appeared in like car insurance adverts in the UK or like just insurance adverts as Winston Wolf. Oh wow. But there's like, this kind of like, sh- like ad campaign where like, do you know what I mean? Like somebody's like boiler breaks down and like Winston Wolf shows up and like, f- like, do you know what I mean? Like kind of says what they can do to fix the problem. So like, it's kind of watching it. And when that sequence comes on to kind of like, I had to really push those ads out of my mind. Uh, I'm sure you can find them on YouTube. It will be like, yeah, if you type in Winston Wolf direct line, like you will be able to find these kind of, cringeworthy like pastiches of the winston wolf kind of fixer scenarios for like a broken boiler or like jeremy like a flat tire which is kind of like ah like it 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 breaks my heart somewhat (laughs) but like uh yeah and it kind of shows you those, those ads came out four or five years ago that the film has got some relevance or i guess it's those ads were playing to people who would have watched it at the time who who now are going like i need to i need to get insurance i need to get housing insurance (laughs) (laughs) that's great i'll definitely look for them and uh, if i can i'll include a clip at the end here so petros again um thank you so much for taking the time to come on and chat um, the podcast is caged in. Um, it's currently in the uh, Coppola Connections phase of its existence. And um, uh, Petros, I, I hope we can find an opportunity to talk again in the future. I, I would absolutely love it. Um, 
What one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, yeah, do, what's your theory on what's inside the briefcase? I'm, I, I apologize if you've mentioned it on the podcast before. Uh, I have not, and and you know what, um, I've never really put too much thought into it. Um, I've seen behind the scenes photos of what was actually in the briefcase. It was a bunch of electronics and a light. Mm-hmm. But you know what? That's one of the great unsolved questions of that movie. And one of the things that makes me appreciate it so much is we don't know. All we know is it's important to Marcellus and therefore it's important to Vincent and Jules. Now, if you want to go down the whole rabbit hole, you know, you've got the introduction of Marcellus where he's got the band-aid on the back of his neck and some people say that's where he covered up how they sucked out his soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um yeah, for me it's just it's important to 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 Marcellus so it's important to Jules and Vincent. And I do remember when I saw the movie uh, initially in theaters, uh, for some reason I thought it had something to do with and it's probably, you know, the way it looks when Vincent opens it, but it 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 had something to do with gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's kind of light it admits, right? Yeah, it's, it's 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 that, or it just has a piece of paper saying, "This is a MacGuffin." <laughs> and you know what's funny is, you know, that's a, that's another thing about modern audiences. I think a lot of modern audiences, if the movie came out today, that would really, really bother them. And that's not something that bothers people with this movie. No, it, it, I, I'm happy to go along for the ride. Do you know what I mean, like? The the ride is enjoyable. So like, if if you need a MacGuffin thrown in to get us from point A to point B, I'm still happy to buy a ticket and ride the ride. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think that's a perfect perfect uh, uh, opportunity for us to sort of end the um, end the conversation. And again, Petros, thank you so much for taking out the time to chat with me. I always appreciate when people make time out of, in their day to uh, sit down and, and talk and talk this movie with me. No, thank you so much for having me on. I've had an absolute blast. What you doing, Wolf? Yeah? You were on your way to Marsh's hen party when you took a hit from a couple of wise guys. Nightmare. About your car. Does it smoke? Make a noise? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Call Direct Line. They'll arrange a higher car. Won't have to wait for mine to go in for repair. Not with Direct Line. Oh, hey, what about us? Are you with Direct Line? No. Then on your bike, Buster. <laughs>